And really quickly, just want to point something out before we jump into the text this morning. Uh, I think this will be on the screen. If you could just throw that Japan slide up there for me. Uh, is, there, is there any more info? Is there another slide about that? There we go. That's what I wanted to see right there. So we are taking a trip to Japan this summer. We've kind of been going every other year to Japan. The reason for that is because we have a, a, a sister church, uh, Soma Fuchu, that we support financially, uh, that we're invested in and trying to help plant a church in Japan. Uh, one of the least, well, it is, it's the least reached open country in the world. Half of 1% know Jesus. And so there's a church in Tokyo called Soma Fuchu. Fuchu is a suburb or kind of neighborhood within Tokyo. And we're sending a team there August 2019. I think we have, I'm not sure on the hard numbers yet. Those are still coming in. But between 10 and 15 people that are going, which is great, go there, teach English, get a cool cross-cultural experience, get to share the gospel, get to support this small little fledgling church, uh, try and reach their community. If you're interested, if you just have questions, you just want to get your kind of name on the radar for the people that are organizing that trip, Dave, who runs our youth stuff, is organizing that trip. He's leading that trip. His email address is on the screen, dave at westvillagechurch.com. Just shoot him an email. Just say, hey, I got questions or hey, I want to go or whatever it is. And, and he'll get back to you. But we kind of need to do that like soon, like in the next like week, we should probably know if you're interested in coming or not, because we got to nail down some hard dates. We got to get uh, plane tickets ordered and all that stuff. So, um, so do that. Okay. Matthew chapter eight. If you have a Bible, open it up and go there. If you have a Bible app on your phone, um, open that up. If you don't have a Bible, there's some here on the table, and we would love for you to have that and take it with you. So we've been going verse by verse through the Gospel of Matthew for a long time. For the last half a year or so, uh, we've been in what is called the Sermon on the Mount, and now we're coming out of the Sermon on the Mount, and, and we're going into the public ministry of Jesus. So that's where we're going to pick up this morning, just to give you some context. Matthew chapter 8, verse 1 uh, starts and says this. Matthew records this. He says, when Jesus came down from the mountainside, large crowds followed him. So again, just context for us here. Context is important. Uh, Jesus has been up on this mountainside, Matthew chapter 5, chapter 6, chapter 7, where we were for about half a year. He's on this mountainside. He's preaching about the kingdom of heaven. He's preaching to us and he's telling us, this is what it looks like when I am king, when you live in my kingdom, when you submit to my rule and reign, when I have authority, when I have dominion. In other words, this is what it's supposed to look like. This is what the world is supposed to look like. And now what we have here is Jesus coming down off the mountain. And now what's interesting, and we've said this previously in the series, but it bears repeating this morning. Uh, what, what we have here is Matthew telling us a story. He's going to tell us a whole bunch of, like there's a series here in Matthew chapter 8 and chapter 9 of stories where Jesus is going to heal people. There's going to be three sets of three healings. And in between each set of three healings, there's a call to respond to the authority and goodness and grace of Jesus. Um, but that's not an accident, so one of the things we've been saying, the gospel of Matthew, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are all called the gospels. And gospel is indeed, it's, a, it's a, actually a genre similar to biography, uh, but first century biography, very different than 21st century biography. 21st century biography is facts. It's data. It's just kind of giving you, you know, the lay of the land. It's telling you exactly about a person's life, how they lived, all that stuff. First century uh, biography is very different. Uh, what the gospel writers did when they were telling their stories, yes, telling true stories, absolutely, historically accurate, absolutely. But what they would do is they would pull particular parts of the story and put them in particular places for particular reasons. So I don't know, we use this analogy, but if you watch the show, This Is Us, 
also known as uh, Snot Face Cry, every episode you watch if you actually have a human heart, um, you'll know that this is how they tell the story, right? Like they unfold this story of this family and they kind of go, they, they kind of piece it out. They don't tell it in chronological order. They don't just give you the data. They go back and talk about things that happened in the past. They look ahead and talk about things that are happening in the future, all to draw out this one grand theme that each episode is trying to give to us. Well, that's what Matthew's doing here. So it's not a coincidence that he orders these healing miracles in this particular order at this particular time because he wants to give us a particular message. And what he's trying to show us here is that, yes, Matthew chapter 5, yes, Matthew chapter 6, yes, Matthew chapter 7, Jesus has been preaching the Sermon on the Mount. And if you've been here, it's hard stuff. It's gloriously hard stuff, right? A confrontation. You're just like, when, like, when is this going to be over so I can stop feeling like horrible about myself? Because it kind of confronts you. That's what Jesus does in the Sermon on the Mount. He confronts the religious people. He's critiquing religion for much of the Sermon on the Mount. But here what we see is Jesus comes down off the mountain and he actually embodies the truth of the Sermon on the Mount. And we get this beautiful picture of what it actually looks like when the Sermon on the Mount is lived out, when it takes on flesh. And what I love about this is we see here in Jesus, and you've got to get this, you've got to see this in him, because it's a beautiful reality that he's not just this religious guru who, you know, sits on proverbial mountains spitting out religious platitudes, spitting out, uh, you know, commands and critiques, calling you to do something, calling you to change your life, calling you to clean yourself up. He doesn't just do that. He does indeed call us to things. But look at this. It says here, Matthew, Jesus came down from the mountainside. He, he actually rolls up his sleeves. He actually gets into the weeds. He actually enters into the mess. He actually embodies the message that he has preached. And, and this is crazy. Just think about this with me for a second. Jesus actually does everything that he calls us to do. What, what grace and kindness. And there's some cues we can take from this in terms of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. The church, its place in, in culture, its place in our community, its place in the city of Victoria and the country of Canada isn't just to like sit here and blast truth, to blast truth out to the nation, to, to blast disembodied truth, but rather to roll our sleeves up and enter in. I mean, we talk about this a lot at West Village. We, we say things like, we don't go to church, we are the church. And that's what we're seeing here. We're seeing that Jesus actually embodies the message that he preaches. So now let's get to work here because we got a lot of verses to cover. This is kind of setting the table for us. But now what we're going to see is Jesus has these two encounters with these two different people. But really, ultimately, what Matthew's trying to do is show us one big picture through these two healing stories. So here we go. Matthew chapter 8, picking up. That was verse 1. We're going to... Uh, verse 2. Here we go. Sorry. A man with leprosy came and knelt before him. Okay, let's stop there for just a second, okay? This is why it takes us a long time to get through the gospel of Matthew. Uh, so, so Jesus comes down off the mountainside. He's been preaching the kingdom of heaven. He's been preaching, this is what it looks like to live in my kingdom. He comes down off the mountainside. He's gonna start embodying what it actually looks like to, to live out the kingdom values. And then look at what happens. A man comes to Jesus, falls down, kneels in front of him, and it says he's a man with Leprosy. Now, for us in the 21st century, when we think of leprosy, it doesn't really have a lot of 
uh, you know, staying power doesn't really like do much for us. It's not a disease we're particularly familiar with. I don't even know if we have a cure for it, but it do, it's not really a thing that we deal with. But in the first century, that was not the case. Uh, in the first century, leprosy was a real problem. Uh, if you contracted the disease and it was a disease that would kind of get into your skin and it would eventually cause parts of your body to fall off because you would lose feeling in them and the blood wouldn't circulate there, you'd bump into things, you would hurt yourself. Uh, and, and it was, I don't, I don't know how contagious it was, but the point was if you got it, it was deadly and people were terrified of you. They were terrified of you because they didn't want to get it from you. And so what would happen if you contracted leprosy is you were considered an outcast. So there were some physical realities to, to getting leprosy, but there were much deeper things that were happening than just physical realities. There were social and spiritual realities or social and spiritual implications. Uh, if you go back to Leviticus 13 and 14, we won't go there this morning, but there's a whole, there's a whole layout of how the leper was to be treated within the context of the community. They were, they were completely cut off from the community in every way. Uh, they were called to, to live outside of the camp. They were called to live in the wilderness. They were to have no contact with anyone. They, they weren't allowed to cut their hair. They had to wear uh, unkept clothes so that people could identify them physically. They would see them, they would look at them, and they would know that this is somebody who's contracted the disease of leprosy. So they would have no contact with their family. They'd have no contact with their spouse, with their children, with their parents. Nobody was allowed to have contact with them. There were actually li literally leper colonies where people would live. And the only people that they would have contact with were other people who had the same disease as them. But it gets even worse because what was supposed to happen is whenever a leper would come within a certain distance of somebody or a community of people that didn't have leprosy, if it were to happen for some reason, what they were to do is they were to yell about themselves, unclean, 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 so that those around knew that the person coming had leprosy knew that they were unclean, knew that they were to be outside of the community. And what's interesting, when you go through the gospel accounts of all the healings of Jesus, in every instance where Jesus healed somebody, the request was for healing, and Jesus healed. But what we see here, look at the request that this man makes to Jesus. He says, Lord, if you are willing can you make me clean? He doesn't ask to be healed of a disease. He asks to be made clean. Because here was probably the worst implication of the disease of leprosy. You were considered spiritually defiled. In every way, you were an outcast. In every way, you were outside of the people of God. You were deemed to be outside of even the grace of God. And so I want you just to imagine with me for a second what it's like in this scenario. You have Jesus surrounded by religious people coming down from the mountainside, and a man with leprosy comes towards him. Imagine what the people are thinking. Imagine what the responses are. Imagine you're a mother in that scenario. You're terrified of your children contracting this disease. You're covering their eyes. You're screeching with terror. You're running away. You're calling that person out. And this person comes to Jesus, throws himself at the feet of Jesus. This man comes to Jesus, throws himself at the feet of Jesus and says, Lord, if you are willing, make me clean. I don't want you to miss what's happening here. 
what Matthew's doing, what he's trying to show us, again, everything is written with very specific intent. Matthew is actually trying to give us a living parable about what it looks like to live in the kingdom of God. This is a living demonstration of the Sermon on the Mount. This is a living picture of the way that God intends the world to be. That just as leprosy caused this man to be an outsider, that just as it was incurable, that just as it, it caused him to be, uh, you know, socially outcasted, sin has the same effect on our lives. That when we look at this story, it's easy for us to put ourselves in the place of Jesus and say something to the effect of we're supposed to love those who are outside, forgetting the fact that we are the ones who are on the outside. And what Jesus is doing here, make no mistake about it, is he's continuing his message that he had preached in physical form. Imagine what the religious leaders were thinking as this man comes into the presence of Jesus. What's he going to do? How's he going to respond? What's he going to say? Is he going to send him away? Let's look at what Jesus does. Verse 3, Jesus reaches out his hand and he touches the man. I'm willing, he said, be clean. And immediately he was cleansed of his leprosy. There's a beautiful reality here. That just as Jesus doesn't just spit out religious platitudes from the top of a mountain, but rolls up his sleeves and comes down off the mountain and enters into the fray and the brokenness of the world. He enters into the mess. He actually embodies the message of the Sermon on the Mount. Here, he doesn't just look at the leper, look at this person in their brokenness, and speak, be clean. He actually reaches out and touches the man. We're going to look at a story in just a couple of verses where Jesus speaks and heals not even in the same room, not even in the same area, which means Jesus didn't have to touch this man to heal him. But he does. Why? Because he wants to identify with the brokenness. He wants to identify with this man in a way that's going to whisper into his heart, you are loved. You are loved. I, I don't know where you're at this morning. But my suspicion is for, for many of us, this lands. There, there's a reality where, where we don't feel worthy of the grace of God. Where we don't feel like we're in this position to receive the grace and the mercy and the forgiveness of Jesus. And don't let it be lost on you that that Jesus can come into the situation that you're experiencing right now and and literally touch you, literally heal you. I mean, this is ultimately a picture of what Jesus does for us on the cross where he, he enters into human history. He enters into the brokenness of the world. He goes to the cross where he dies in our place for our sins. And we hear that all the time and it becomes like white noise because we don't really understand what it means. But what we're seeing is that Jesus enters into all of our leprosy. 
He enters into the place of all of our brokenness. He enters into the place of, of all that, it, that causes us to feel unsafe, insecure, unworthy of the love, unworthy of the grace of God. All the places of shame, all the places of guilt, all the places of brokenness, all the places of failure, all the failed marriages, all the failed, you know, jacked up things that we've done in our life, all the things that we didn't do that we should have done and did do that we shouldn't have done. He enters into that and he says, I'm willing be healed. Be healed. That is available to us in Christ if, listen, don't miss what happens here. Go back up to verse two. A man with leprosy came and knelt before Jesus. In the King James Version, the King James translation of this same verse, the word is worshiped. He actually came and worshiped at the feet of Jesus. This man had such faith, but faith in what? Faith in Jesus. He had a sober awareness of who he was. He recognized his own brokenness. We don't know what he knew about Jesus. We're pretty confident he didn't know much, but he knew enough to know that he was broken in Jesus could heal him. And he threw himself at the feet of Jesus. If you were here for the last two Sundays as we finished the Sermon on the Mount, those were hard words. I got into the car with my kids. We were driving home, and one of my kids said, Dad, that was harsh. Yeah, it was harsh. I talked with some of you, many of you, in the lobby right after, and there was this sense of like, I'm not even sure if I'm a Christian. I want you to see something here. Don't miss this. We're going to see it here. We're going to see it in the next set of verses as well. Both healings, both instances, the faith that allowed these people to be healed, that allowed Jesus to do the work that only Jesus can do. There's, there's two aspects to it. And don't miss it. First one is this, a keen awareness of need. This man knew he was broken. But it didn't end there because if it just ends there, it leads to a place of despair. And here's what happens when you get to this place of despair. You actually start believing that you're unworthy of the grace of Jesus. Check this out. You have to bring something to the table to receive it. It's another form of religion. That's the first thing. Here's the second thing. You have to look at Jesus and see that he alone is good. And when you recognize those two things, here's what happens, friends. It's beautiful. You can throw yourself at his feet. You can worship him. There's two things that keep us from the worship of Jesus that looks like the worship that this man had of Jesus. The first one is this, believing that we have to do something to get there. And the second one is believing we've done something to earn the favor of God. Some of you recognize, you identify with the leper. You're like, it's not hard. I feel like one. I feel like an outcast. And you're stuck with your leprosy. You can't figure out why you can't get rid of it. And here might be your... Thing to consider. 
that you need to stop trying to earn the grace of God. You need to stop trying to earn the favor of God. You need to let go of shame. And you need to throw yourself at the feet of the one who can save. So Jesus reaches out, he touches the man, he says, I'm willing, be clean. Then Jesus says to him, see that you don't tell anyone, but go and show yourself to the priest and offer the gift that Moses commanded as a testimony to them. So Jesus heals this man, he sends him off, sends him to the religious leaders, sends him to to show that he is the one who has authority. And then the story continues. Verse 5 says this, when Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him asking for help. Lord, he said, my servant lies at home and uh, is par- lies at home paralyzed and he's suffering terribly. So we, again, here we have two healing stories, right? And again, Matthew does everything with a high degree of intentionality. He's telling particular stories in particular place to make a particular point. So on one hand, we have the story of a leper. Now we have the story of the centurion. This was a Roman centurion. So the leper is like a social misfit. He's a social outcast. The centurion was the complete opposite. He was a man of great wealth. He was a, a man of great privilege. Uh, he, was, uh, he had a position of authority in the Roman Empire. He actually had, the reason he was called a centurion is because he had a hundred men to whom he gave authority, uh, gave leadership to. So this was somebody who was incredibly, incredibly privileged, but he was a Gentile, meaning he was non-Jewish. Now, if you know the Bible, if you're familiar with the story of God, it was the Jewish people, the nation of Israel, who kind of had the corner on relationship with God. Those who were outside of the nation of Israel, so everybody who was non-Jewish was identified as Gentiles. And it was the Gentiles who were considered uh, outside of God's grace, outside of God's favor, that, that they were despised, actually, by the people of God. Now, don't miss what Matthew's doing here. He's saying, okay, so on one hand, we have a leper, a social outcast, someone who doesn't have life figured out, someone who doesn't have life together. They're outside of the grace of God. You look at that story, you think, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I get it. You look at this guy, though, and on the outside, how does he look? He looks like he has everything together. He looks like he has his life all figured out. He looks like he's got all his ducks in a row. He's got, you know, life is good for him. And Matthew is saying, but this man has just as much need as the leper. And what he's trying to show us is that while these two people might be on the opposite ends of the social spectrum, if you just scratch a little bit beneath the surface, their need is the same. So so the person who's downtown, strung out on drugs, homeless, the needs are obvious. You can see them. The sin is glaring. It's up on the surface. You think, wow, those people really need Jesus. I'm glad I'm not like them. But what Matthew is saying here is this is actually a warning to us. Be careful. Because you might look great on the outside, but the reality is if you just go beneath the surface a little bit, if you get down to the heart, the need is the same. And we we hide our sin much better. We've just figured out socially appropriate ways to be broken. That's all we've done. Right? Skinny jeans, $20,000 cars, and $5 lattes. But what Matthew is saying is, at the heart level, there is no difference between this man and the leper. They're the same. And so the, uh, the centurion, rather, comes to Jesus. He asks for a healing. Now look at what Jesus says here, okay? Verse 7. Jesus 
said to him, shall I come and heal him? Now on the surface, this doesn't seem like a big deal, but again, everything that Matthew is showing us is for a, for a particular reason. And so here we get a picture of Jesus saying to the centurion, because the servant that the centurion wants healed is not there. So Jesus says, can I, can I come over to your house? That's what this literally translates as. Can I come over to your house and heal him? What's the big deal? The big deal is this. In Jewish tradition, for a Jewish person to enter into the home of a Gentile would be the equivalent of touching a leper. You would be declared unclean. It was not socially acceptable. It was not spiritually acceptable to enter into the home of a Gentile. If you were to enter into their home, if you were to eat with them, if you were to share any part of your life with them, then you were to be outside of the people of God. You were declared unclean because those people were so far gone from the grace of God that they didn't even deserve your presence. And what Jesus is doing here, what Matthew's trying to show us is that the kingdom of God looks so different than the way that we think it looks. Like what we're seeing here is that, that, that Jesus is actually redefining for us what holiness looks like. I mean, inside the church, I, I feel like maybe not at West Village so much because we rant about this stuff so often, but it, it's so easy to slip into a mindset of us and them that we have got things figured out here, that the way that we live and the way that we do life, it's good. And out there, the big, bad world out there is dangerous. And the way that we remain holy is by separating ourselves from the big, big, bad world. This is what Tim Keller calls the Christian ghetto, right? We enter into the Christian ghetto. We live in the Christian ghetto. And so instead of Netflix, we get pure flicks, which I just discovered this week is a thing. That's a thing. I'm not going to say anything else about it because it's a thing. I can't believe that's a thing. Oh my gosh. It used to be Christian radio I hacked on. Pure Flix is my new rant, okay? Instead of Halloween, we don't do Halloween. That's demonic and evil, right? Long noses, warts, and broomsticks. That's, that's bad. And some of you are going to come talk to me after about any of this stuff. We do harvest parties. We're all about harvest parties. And we think that somehow by, by staying out of the world, we can, we can make ourselves holy. We don't send our kids to public school where they learn about dinosaurs and homosexuals. We send our kids to Christian school because we're worried. We're afraid. Now, I'm not saying these things are bad. Well, maybe pure flex, but just kidding, kind of. No, actually, you should pay attention. Never mind. Another sermon for another day. I'm not saying it's bad to send your kids to Christian school. I'm not saying it's bad to have harvest parties or trunk or treat or whatever weird Christian things we do, right? Like college and career. What is that? That's not even like a real word. It's a word that the church made up. I don't, it doesn't matter. We do weird stuff in the church. And I'm not saying these things are bad in and of themselves, but here, don't miss the point that Jesus is trying to make, that Matthew's trying to make here, is if you think that somehow by doing those things, you can either keep yourself holy or make yourself holy, you do not understand holiness. How do we know this? Because of Jesus, right? His, the way he lived was completely opposite of all those things I just talked about. If you have your Bibles, uh, you know, go a few pages to the, to the right, swipe right if you're on your phone, unless you're on Tinder, and then don't do that. Um, Sorry, I was just on a roll. John 17, here we go. Here's what Jesus says. He prays this for his church right before he goes to the cross, okay? So this isn't Chris making up stuff and just thinks Christians have bad movies and bad music. This is Jesus, okay? You got a problem, take it up with him. Here's what he says, verse 15. My prayer is not 
Not, N-O-T, not. The Greek word there for that word is not, okay? It's not. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They're not out of the world, even as I am not out of it. Sanctify them. What does that word mean? Sanctify means to be made holy, to be set apart. That's what the word holy means, to be set apart. For what? For the purposes of God. Sanctify them. By what? By taking them out of the world? No, he's already said he's not going to do that. By protecting them from all this bad stuff out there? Yes. How does he do that? By the truth. Your word is truth. And as you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. For them, I sanctify myself that they truly may be sanctified. So what is it that makes us holy? Is it all... No. I mean, you got to use wisdom, friends, right? You got to use wisdom. You got to use discernment. You got to disciple your kids. You got to disciple yourselves. You got to pay attention to what you pay attention to, all that stuff. But it doesn't defile you. It's not what comes into a man that defiles him, Jesus says. It's what's going on in his heart. What makes us holy? Jesus makes us holy. The Spirit of God makes us holy. The Word of God is what makes us holy. This place isn't holy because it's a church gathering and we all identify as Christians. It's just not. There's a lot of sinners down the hall, right? There's a lot of sinners in the room. There's a lot of sin, like they're everywhere. You can't get away from Genesis 3. It's the reality that we live in until Jesus comes again and wipes away every tear and takes away everything that is broken. And my prayer, our prayer for this church is not that it would be a safe place for your kids. It's not. I do not want my kids to get to the end of their life or the end of my life or into adulthood and to be safe Christians. Jesus says in John 17, the reason that I sanctify them, the reason that I make them holy is so they can be sent into the world just as I have been sent into the world. Matthew chapter 16, verse 18, Jesus says, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. What that isn't a picture of is a bunch of Christians scared in the corner, hiding because the big bad world is coming and we got to set up some gates. No, gates were actually offensive things. They were things that went out into the world. And the picture we have of the church is a picture that is moving, that is on the offense, that is in the city, that is proclaiming the gospel, that is living a life amongst the people of God that don't know God. I mean, that's what we're talking about here when we talk about Jesus coming down off the mountain, touching the leper, going to the house, or being willing to go to the house of this centurion. It's that he's actually willing to enter into the fray. And so my prayer is that this would be a place that would just be filled with people that don't know Jesus. That we would have homosexuals here. We would have divorced people living here. We'd have, or coming here. We'd have people that are part of this church family that are living together and not married. That I mean, I love it when I see people out front smoking. I'm like, that's awesome. Praise God. I'm glad they're a part of West Village. It's amazing. Why? Because that's what the kingdom of God looks like, friends. The kingdom of God is not a bunch of white, upper, middle-class people who got dressed up really nice for the morning pretending to be religious. It's the broken. It's the outcast. It's the people who recognize that they have a deep need coming to Jesus. And so Jesus redefines for us what holiness looks like. And and this then, of course, should inform how we live our lives. 
So, so an obvious question then to ask is like in your life, does it look like this? And I realize for some of us is new. We're trying to figure out what it means to follow Jesus. But here's, here's my promise to you. Here, here's Jesus' promise to you. That greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Amen? And you can enter into the darkest place and be holy and tell people about Jesus. You don't have to be afraid. Some of us are afraid. We're afraid of the world. We don't have to be. It's not that scary. Jesus is good. He will, he will fill you. He will sustain you. He will use you. And other people will come to know him because of it. So Jesus redefines for us what holiness looks like. He says, I will come to the house. Look at the response. The centurion says this, Matthew chapter 8, verse 8. The centurion replied, Lord, I do not deserve to have you come under my, uh, to come under my roof, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. So, okay, so just a tip. West Village, here's a tip. If you ask Jesus to do something for you and he says, sure, I'll come do it, don't say no, okay? That's what this guy says. He's like, Jesus, will you heal my servant? Uh, Jesus like, yes, I'll come over and heal your servant. He's like, no, don't come, don't come. The kitchen's a mess, I don't want you to come. And he's like, oh, okay, fine, I won't come. But then look at what he says next. For I myself am a man under authority with soldiers under me. I tell one, go, and he goes, and then one, come, and he comes. And I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. Verse 10, when Jesus heard this, he was amazed. Okay, if you're a Bible underliner, phone highlighter, this is the word, right? Amazed. Highlight it, underline it. <clears throat> Why? Because this is the only time we see in the entire New Testament, the entire gospel accounts of the life and ministry of Jesus, where he's actually amazed, or the, some translations will use the word astonished, astonished or amazed at the faith of someone else. It's the only time. So, so we should probably ask the question, what is it about this man's faith that caused Jesus to be amazed? Because I think if we're honest, hopefully if we're honest, uh, or hopefully this is the case if we're being honest, that when we think of how Jesus thinks about us, when we think about how he thinks of our faith, it's not, you know, he's amazed and astonished. Most of us, it's like he puts up with us because he has to, right? But here we see that Jesus is actually amazed at this man's faith. So, so what is it? We'll go, go back up to verse eight. Look at what he says here. Jesus says, verse 7, he says, I'm going to come over to your house. He says, I do not deserve. I do not deserve to have you come under my roof. What is this? This is the leper. He knows his brokenness. He knows his need. The leper throws himself at the feet of Jesus. says, Lord, Lord, if you're willing, please. Please, heal me. And here the centurion says, Jesus, I'm not deserving to even have you in my home. And there is a reality about faith that astonishes Jesus that starts with us recognizing that we need him. We need him. But then it doesn't end there. Like I already said, if that's where it ends, it leaves us despairing, wondering, does he actually care about me? Am I actually going through the narrow gate on the narrow path? I, 
I don't know. All I know is I'm broken and messed up and jacked up and in desperate need. But look at what he says next. But just say a word and my servant will be healed. Then verse 9, for I myself am a man under authority. In other words, he looks at Jesus. He recognizes his need. It doesn't end there. He recognizes that Jesus is the only one who can heal him. There's no one else. In other words, I've tried everything else. I've gone down every path. I've, I've tried to find meaning. I've tried to find happiness. I've tried to find contentment. I've tried to find satisfaction. I've tried everything and nothing else is working. And so I know I'm broken. I know I have need. And now I look at you, Jesus, and I have nowhere else to go. So I want to throw myself at your feet, trusting that you and you alone can satisfy me, can make me whole, can heal me, can make me right again. Family. Remember, we got lepers in the room. We got centurions in the room. We got people in the room here this morning who know. They know, they know, they know that they are broken. But they're holding on to their brokenness. They're holding on to their shame. They will not throw themselves at the feet of Jesus because they do not believe that they are even worthy of his grace. If you're here this morning and that's you, you know, you're the person that walked in the door and you're like, man, the only reason I'm even coming to this church is because it meets in a movie theater. I'm pretty sure if I went to like a real church, one with a building, I'd walk in and I would just spontaneously combust into flames. That's how unholy I am. If that's you, if you're in that camp, you're just sitting here squirming, knowing, knowing you're broken, knowing You're undeserving of God's grace. Here's what I would say to you. The invitation is to recognize that this thing doesn't hinge on you. You don't have to clean yourself up to get to Jesus, but Jesus gets down off the mountain. He gets down from heaven and comes to earth. He enters into the mess. He enters into the brokenness. He walks with you. is you don't have to do this on your own. He lays down his life even when you're not deserving of it. So my word to you this morning is stop trying to earn the grace of God because you don't have to. You just have to throw yourself at the feet of Jesus and say, Lord, if you're willing, please heal me. But then in this room there are Many people on this end of the spectrum. We're centurions, but we don't know it. Come to church. We do our thing. Everything looks good. It's upper, middle class, religious people. Can't really identify with lepers. Look around. Life's pretty good. Feel like I got this figured out throw myself at the feet of Jesus. I mean, I'm into it. It's good. Sing songs, clap, you know, all that. I'm into that, but I don't really need him. Jesus is saying the exact same thing to you. 
Don't think that you can somehow earn the grace of God. But recognize that He is the only one who can heal you. Scratch beneath the surface. See the brokenness and run to Jesus. I need to land. Plane, why not? I'll invite the band to come up as I do. Jesus then goes on. He says this. I'll just read right down to the end. Verse 11, I say to you that many will come from the east and the west, and you'll take your places at the feast of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. So here Jesus is painting a picture for us of what heaven is going to be like. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they were the, the forefathers, the patriarchs of the Jewish faith. And he's saying there's going to be a day where there's this big party in heaven. They are going to be there, but don't miss what he says. Many will come from the east and the west, meaning outside of the nation of Israel. They're going to come. People from outside of the nation of Israel are going to come. They're going to throw themselves at the feet of Jesus, and they're going to get to spend eternity in heaven. This would have been scandalous and shocking to the religious folks of the day. But then he says this in verse 12, but the subjects of the kingdom, meaning those who think they are in, those who are in the inside, who are on the inside, they will be thrown outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Here's what Jesus is saying. We have a choice to make. We have a decision to make because there's two ways this thing can go. We can either recognize our brokenness and the authority of Jesus, throw ourselves at his feet, and celebrate the wedding feast of the Lamb. Or we can let our pride get in the way. And the way the pride works itself out in two ways I've already talked about, feeling like you have to do something to earn God's favor or feeling like you've done something to earn God's favor. And then what Jesus says is you will be on the outside. What he's saying here is those who choose to not throw themselves at the feet of Jesus, they will be in hell. Emil Brunner, a theologian, says this about the doctrine of hell. Hell is not a doctrine used to frighten unbelievers, but rather it's a doctrine used to warn those who think themselves believers. Jesus continues to poke and prod the religious folks. And religion will work itself out in your life if you think you have to earn God's favor. You can be a religious leper or a religious centurion. So don't miss what Jesus is saying to us. This isn't a follow me or else. This is a look in your heart. Take stock of your heart. Are you the kind of person who recognizes that you have a deep need for Jesus? If the answer is yes, then recognize that he is the only one who can heal you, transform you, and make you whole and throw yourself at his feet. Throw yourself at his feet. And Jesus said to the centurion, go, let it be done just as you believed it would. And his servant was healed at that 
moment. This is the moment. For some of you, this is the moment to throw yourself at the feet of Jesus. To come and sit down and recognize, sit at his feet and recognize that you need him more than life itself. That all the things you have tried to do to earn satisfaction, to earn contentment, to earn approval, to make yourself in. Lord, I need you. I need you. I need you. So that's Jesus' invitation to us this morning. Come to him and declare your need. Let me pray for us. Jesus, there are many of us in this room who need you desperately. We're broken. We're hurting. Our sin, it's obvious. It's on the surface. We can't hide it very well. There are many of us who are playing games, trying to clean up the cup from the outside when really what needs to happen is we need you to come to the inside. So right now in this moment, Spirit of God, would you just speak into our hearts? Show us. Show us who we really are. But then, Lord, in your kindness, don't leave us there. Come down off the mountain, Lord. Roll up your sleeves. Touch us. Touch us. We're going to respond, family, in a few different ways. We're going to sing. Uh, as Cam said, if this is your church and you're a follower of Jesus, we're going to give. There will be two jars. There are two jars up here at the front. We're also going to respond by taking communion. So the front of both of these aisles, there'll be two stations or one station at the end of each of the aisle. At the station, you're going to find a cracker that you can take and dip it into the wine or juice, whichever. This ultimately is a picture of what Jesus has done for us on the cross. This is a picture of the grace that Jesus has for us. This is the ultimate picture of Jesus coming down off the mountain. This is the ultimate picture of Jesus touching the leper. This is the ultimate picture of Jesus entering into the house of the Gentile. This is Jesus, God with skin on, entering into the deepest, darkest brokenness in all of human history, taking on all of our sin and all of our guilt and all of our shame and identifying with us. And if we identify with him, he identifies with us and he declares that we are clean. So this is your come to Jesus moment. Like literally, this is why we do this every Sunday because every Sunday we need a reminder that we need to come to Jesus. And so if you're, if you're here this morning and you're a follower of Christ, we invite you to come forward with repentant hearts. Hearts saying, Jesus, I need you. If you're here this morning and maybe this is new or it's been a while and you're not sure where, where you're at, then it's okay. Just stay in your seat. Don't feel like you have to come forward. In fact, if, if you are not identifying as a follower of Jesus, then we, we would say that communion is not for you. This is our way of saying that 
we identify completely with Jesus. We're taking them all this. Let, let me just say this to you. If you're here and you, you don't know Jesus, this, this could be your moment. I mean, the, the leper, the centurion, they didn't know. They, they didn't know all that we know about Jesus, but they did know they had great need and he was a great savior. And so if you're here and you're just sensing the spirit of God moving, calling you, then as a profession of faith, as a way of saying, Lord, I need you to heal me, come forward and take communion with us. Come forward and actually touch, not literally, but in a metaphorical, living, parable kind of way, experience the touch of Jesus through communion. So family, why don't we stand and respond together?